Hi, you're listening to the Media Intelligence Explained podcast. This is a podcast produced by FIBEP. I'm Vlado, one of the hosts, and together with me is Alicia. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Vlado. Nice to hear you. Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. We would like to say that the topic of this episode will be analyzing media, and we already recorded a great interview with Mazen Hawi, who is the CEO of Karma. So if you don't want to miss that, just jump a few minutes in the future of this podcast and the interview will be there. But before that, we would like to say thanks to Sofia Karakeva. She's helping us with this uh, podcast. I would like to say thanks to Identrix. Uh, Identrix is uh, primary sponsor of this podcast. And we have few announcements, right, Alicia? Yeah, so I have some exciting news because oh. the draft for the Congress and the FIBA World Media Intelligence Congress in Dublin was announced. So from the 14th uh, until 16th of September, uh, we will be meeting live on, on the site in mm. Dublin. And on the first day, on Wednesday, we'll have a fireside chat with different FIBA members about how the business models are changing in current times and within our industry. And then in the evening, we'll have the gala dinner. So everyone's always excited about that. The gala is sponsored by One Inclusive. So thank you about that. Get yeah. ready for a lovely evening in an amazing location. On the second day, there's a is full with many different topics. That includes two keynote speeches, a copyright and tech table with expert, best practice and master classes on marketing, media analysis, human resources and research and development. So get ready for another super networking session also sponsored by Global News Group. Yeah. And that's a great occasion to promote your business and meet your potential clients and partners. And after that, we will have an Inkney cocktail sponsored by Mediatrack. On the final day, we'll have a fireside chat with data providers and service providers on data analytics. We'll also talk about innovation storytelling and also something completely different and new for feedback, which I'm so excited to be a part of. We will talk about the video game universe and we'll make a quick dive into a gaming industry and its marketing value in reaching today's consumers. So if you would like to hear more of me talking, <laughs> remember to stay on the last day again. Or, or if you want to meet us and talk to us, just visit that event. And by the way, super networking session. It's mm -hmm. amazing. It's so intensive. And please don't forget your business cards because you will need them for that session. Literally, you will meet like, I don't know, like 30 or 40 people in just hour and a half or two hours. And you will have like two minutes to introduce yourself. So it's very intensive session, but it's a great way to, in a way, introduce yourself and find new interesting people. So that, that's a great uh, session. And by the way, it's it's not something unique for the FIBEP Congress. And I saw other events which do replicate this. So yeah, um, I think that this will become like an industry standard for mm -hmm. each Congress-like events. So yeah, be prepared with your elevator speech and I, I don't know, to meeting all, all of these awesome people. So it's like speed dating by, for business people. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's totally like that. And it's amazing. I do it each time when I can. Even if I know majority of the people, I still do it because from time to time you learn uh, about new initiatives or how mm -hmm. companies change, etc. So it's a very good way to learn news about the 
the industry, the people and the companies uh, from that industry. So I strongly recommend going to that event. Great. For more details, stay tuned to our new podcast episodes. And in the meantime, you can uh, look for an update on the feedback website on, on the newsletter sent to you from by Secretariat. But OK, business aside, there is also one more uh, thing that I would like to talk about. CBAP is also organizing post-Congress trip during the three-day tour. We will travel together to the other side of Ireland from Dublin to Galloway, where we will have a wonderful time enjoying Irish food and drinks and explore the city harbour. On the next day, on Saturday, we will venture to the cliffs of Moher. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, to see one of the best attractions Ireland has to offer. There is a limited space for the trip, so we advise to book it quickly. And as always, we will encourage you to bring your partner with you on this trip. Yeah. And so now it's time for our sponsor. So we would like to give merit to Nystar for being the headline sponsor of the FIBA World Media Intelligence Congress in Dublin, and also to Repoint for being the host sponsor. And we reached the point for the industry news. Mm -hmm. Last time we, we missed that section. We have two very interesting news. Yeah, so the first news that we would like to talk about is that the, the major players like Meta, TikTok, Google and Twitter are preparing to sign on the new misinformation rules in Europe. So uh, you might already heard about it, but it's actually the updated version of the anti-discrimination mm -hmm. code, which will see the implementation of new requirements and uh, punish us in dealing with misinformation. So an updated code of this information will force tech platform to actually disclose how they are removing, blocking and carving harmful content in advertisement and the promotional content. So <laughs> they will not only have to say, yeah, we are doing it. They will have to actually disclose how they are doing it. And it's also they will also have a separate report for each country that they are uh, working in. So they will have to counter the harm from disinformation by developing tools and partnership with fact checkers. They may include taking down propaganda in the, and they will have to independently verify information on issues, issues like the war in Ukraine and the COVID pandemic. So while this specific agreement is in relation to European nations specifically, uh, there are similar proposals that have already been shared in Australia and Canada and the UK. So that regions are also seeking the way to implement the new law. So actually, that's something that's really interesting that because I was not so sure that the that these big groups are going to cooperate with, with mm. governments in that matter. So I'm like quite hopeful to see that. And uh, what do you think? What do you think that's something that actually going to happen? I think that these companies cannot ignore the European market. Like still, European Union is one of the biggest economic blocks out there and we as members of the European Union and the European family uh, have a lot of users so these companies cannot ignore uh, the European Union and the European Commission so I believe that they will cooperate and they will do something but there are a lot of questions I'm not sure how to accept this type of in a way regulations and initiatives um, because always there is a question about censorship. So do, do you have any any worries about deals like this, Alicia? Yes. Yeah, What's so actually, your opinion? Yeah, actually, yes, because there is um these platforms that will they will have to cooperate with local governments, right? That brings worry in countries like mm. when I'm based in, in Poland, when the propaganda is actually quite strong and forceful. And um, that's something that we are, might be worried about because social media internet is the place when we can actually have free speech. And uh, 
it's a little bit worrying. Well, it's something that's going to be marked as, for example, a misinformation or a harmful content, even though it's just your ability to, to use the free speech, right? Because you have just a different mm. idea than mm. the government have on, on s- certain matters. So I, that's a little worrying, I, I guess, especially for countries when the where free speech is not as uh, something as obvious and in other yeah, places. Yeah. But at least they're doing something because there is a lot of pressure from media, from uh, watchdog NGOs and for a lot of different groups. And there is a lot of pressure to, that something needs to be done about propaganda and disinformation uh, because uh, we still remember what happened in 2020 all the disinformation which was used by, how to say, governments which are not part of the European uh, community. And they're using the digital channels to divide us on simple topics like should we vaccinate or not, what's good, what's bad. And uh, this proved to be extremely effective weapon. So something will be done, but we hope that it will be done in a way where censorship will not spread on all these platforms, which are actually all the major platforms, of course. So, yeah, we'll see the other news, the final news. And uh, we hope that this will be the final news from that saga is that just a month ago, me and Alicia plus half of the Internet discussed that uh, Mr. Elon Musk bought, supposedly bought Twitter, uh, but this didn't actually happen. And the news which we would like to discuss with you right now is that actually uh, Mr. Musk tried to pull out from that deal. He stated that there are a lot of fake accounts on Twitter, that Twitter is not in a way helping him and providing him enough information in order to evaluate what actually he bought, which is really strange because if you want to buy something, you collect all this information before the, yeah, the, exactly. the, the, the statement that you will buy something. And Mr. Musk actually said that he's not going to buy Twitter. And right now the Twitter board announced that they will sue him to enforce that deal. Yeah. Uh, and I think so, rightfully yeah. so, right? Because yeah. the Twitter actually lost a lot of value on the market after the Elon announced that he's going to buy Twitter and that yeah. make a big steer uh, <laughs> yes. on the market. Um, so, you know, it's really like, okay, I made all this commotion. I, I made the Twitter lose money and I'm going to back up from it, terminate the contract and no one can do anything about it, right? So I'm pretty interested how it's going to turn out. So what he is he going to do? Is he even have a chance to win this process? So it's really like, you know, millionaires are funny, right? <laughs> they think like they're like, they're just going to tell someone something that is gonna turn out and they think like there are not real world consequences to it and you know there is actually millions of dollars that were lost like just because he tweeted something yeah what can i say i can share my personal opinion which is my sure. personal opinion this is for sure not the opinion of fibib or the FIBIP members of the fibib my opinion is that he's not going to buy it but he will be sued and he will pay compensation to twitter the compensation will be significant, but it will be way less compared to this uh, 45 billion, which he mm-hmm. agreed to buy Twitter. The, 
maybe it will be like one billion, something like that. Yeah. We will see. Yeah. Uh, still a lot of money. They sound really good, like one billion. It's a lot of money, but still it's it's not the same. Uh, so this is this is my really wild, uh, irresponsible prediction of what's going to happen. I read that uh, he will be sued in a particular state, which I, of course, forgot right now, but he will be sued in a particular state, which historically the judges in that state, mm-hmm. they are really for following agreements like this. So they are really mm-hmm. pro deals like this. So it will be harder for him in a way to evade penalties, etc. But yeah, we will see. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but yeah, this is my wild prediction. Okay. What is your prediction? Do you have any? So, so I mostly, I think I have a similar predictions to yours. I think he's going to pay like a fee for, for mm. breaking the contract. I don't think he's going to pay just the one million dollars for the billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for breaking the visits, he's going to pay more because he actually brought some damages to, to mm. the company and it's pretty easy to to prove that right the, the stock market just went wild after he, he talked about buying twitter what is curious for me i wonder how it's gonna affect in f- like future deals with with the, all these big players so i think that people will be more old companies will be more careful with announcing such deals mm. or even plans to to make some deals because everyone was talking about it yeah we were already we were all discussing what what potential changes Elon will bring to Twitter or in social media in general yeah. and it's all like it was a joke right so he yeah. just he just okay, he changed his mind one day. And I think that's the main change that we might see after that, that we will not, don't know about this kind of deals until the, the very end. One final thought on all of that. Uh, we already discussed all of uh, Mr. Musk's ideas, how he will change Twitter. And some of them were really, I don't know how to say, radical. And a lot of people were really afraid that actually uh, freedom of speech will be harmed uh, in one of the major uh, platforms. So all of this, at least, is not going to happen. For good or bad, uh, this is not going to happen. So we are not uh, going to see the those idea implemented. So we will see the same old Twitter for yeah, that's actually pretty sad, right? Because <laughs> I yeah. think that that will actually stop any changes that Twitter might mm. have developed in the future. Because now they are they probably don't want to be sued by Elon Musk in reverse <laughs> for stealing their ideas, his ideas. Yeah. Okay. Saying all of that, we would like to stop here and move to the crown jewel of this podcast, and this is the interview with uh, Mr. Mazin Howie about uh, the media analysis. Have fun. We are finally with uh, Mr. Mazen Hawi, who is the founder and the group CEO at Karma, who actually used to be the president of FIBEP. Hi, Mazen. Hi, lovely to meet you. Did I describe your titles and your current uh, occupation correct? You did. I did. Okay, let's start with a few words about you. How long are you in the media intelligence uh, industry? How did you start Karma? Well, I have a background in journalism. I graduated as a journalist from college, came back to my home in Dubai, where I worked in a newspaper. And after about a year and a half, I decided that a journalist's salary was not enough to live on. And while I loved freedom and freedom of speech and democracy and making the world a better place, I realized I actually had to pay my rent. 
<laughs> so I moved to the dark side and I went to PR and worked there for about five years before joining a client in California. I worked on dot-com projects, but then of course, 2000 happened, the dot-com bubble burst. And then in 2001, 9-11 happened and being in America wasn't much fun. So I came back to my home of Dubai where I needed a new project. And being unemployed gives you the opportunity to think. And my combined background in journalism, PR and technology made me realize that one thing our clients needed was good information. And I began a media monitoring company in late 2002 called MediaWatch, which over the past 20 years has become the new company, Karma. Uh, and that is my career in the media intelligence industry going back to September of 2002. You said that uh, this is the dark side. Why is that? Well, I say it in jest, of course, because <laughs> PR does have a bright side. But I yeah. find uh, PR to be the commercial version of journalism. Mm. In journalism, you're serving the public telling them the truth or trying to. Yeah. PR, you're trying to tell the truth from the perspective of a commercial or a governmental entity. So it's a polished story, which only tries to tell the public about everything good and everything that can sell and everything that helps a customer take out their wallet, which isn't always in their interest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Share with us the different media intelligence products and services. They fell into different places of the value chain. Tell us more about the different products and the existing value chain in the media intelligence industry. I presume that on the bottom is just pure media monitoring, like the way it was done like, like 50 years ago, uh, maybe like newspaper monitoring, etc. If I'm right, what are the next uh, parts of the chain and how do we go in that direction? Well, I like everything in threes. And uh, the holy trinity of media intelligence it begins with what I view as media data, the name of publications, journalists, influencers. Some people might describe that as your media database and PR distribution service. But I think media database and PR distribution are part of a generalized media data foundation for media intelligence. For example, just having a list of publications, a list of hashtags, very important today. So having that foundation would be the initial step within the value chain. The second step would be media monitoring, which you correctly pointed out to, very foundational, very much at the heart of media intelligence. And the value there is on the name, finding the data which is relevant, monitoring it and delivering it to the client. And finally, the insights part. Now, many people confuse insights with analysis. They confuse insights and data. These are different things. That's why they have different words and yep. different names. But that third and ultimate element within the value chain of media intelligence is driven around finding a story from the data. You gather up the data. That's great. It has a value. But then there's a different level of value when you interpret the data and you find a story which helps someone make a good decision. And that's insights. So media data, monitoring, insights, they're the holy trinity of media intelligence. Thank you. I'm asking this because today's topic, like the meta topic of uh, this interview will be the media analysis. I would really like uh, if we pinpoint the media analysis into the value chain. So where do you pinpoint? Where do we pinpoint the media analysis? Yeah, that's correct. Is it like part of the media monitoring or it's insights or is it between 
the, the no, it's a subset of insight. Okay. Media analysis will have a discipline built around methodology, around metrics, around quantitative and qualitative data, which all feed into the insights. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you talk about media analysis to your clients, do they confuse it with like PR, media relations, integrated media relations, marketing communications, or they already know what this is? Not everybody knows what it is. I think a majority of people understand media analysis in general. I think where you have a divergence of views and opinions as what should media analysis look like and in what form should it be delivered. There's also some confusion about the value of media analysis. So on the very low end of the value chain, you have people who think media analysis is a dashboard. You know, you click on the button, you get a number of widgets, ah, magic, insight. But that's not actually insight. It's a dashboard and a dashboard is only a dashboard. It might provide you insight. It might not provide you insight. It might provide you good data. It might provide you bad data. But at the end of the day, it's just a dashboard. What goes in and what comes out is depending on a much broader set of disciplines, which increase the value or not. And where I find a big challenge worldwide is when you have a lot of young PR people who think, oh, media analysis, give me a tool give me a dashboard. And they think that it's only an exercise in graphing, charting, and technology, and it is not. So that's on the low end of the value chain. On the high end of the value chain, you have a a CEO or a chief communications officer who will come and say, has my reputation improved or has it gone down? And why? And prove to me why. That's where giving him a dashboard will not add any value. They want to sit down with an analyst and have a conversation. They want to look at different data points. They want to understand your methodology. Did you capture the right content from the right people in the right time with the right conversations and engagement? And then you can credibly provide your analysis and your insight. And then you have a lot in between. So the demand for analysis and insight, measurement and evaluation is a broad exercise which varies differently from one person to another. The more inexperienced they are, the more they just want an automated solution. The more senior they are, the more they want a deep, well-thought-out insight solution. Great. So if I understand correctly, the analysis, the artifact of the media analysis, is that's a report. Like it's a very well-written document with a lot of insights. And that report usually starts with a particular question or a problem which is described by your customers. Can you share more with us and our audience about the process? How, how does this usually start? Like you, you have a customer and they contact you and say, okay, we are looking to get a report about that problem. What kind of people listen to these customers? What happens after that? So how do you deliver that rep- report to them? What is your methodology? Of course, whatever you can share with us. Sure, happy to. I think you're very correct in bringing up the issue of identifying a problem and solving it. I think it's one element within a broader discussion of a client wanting to know the truth. So it could be a problem. It could be a curiosity. It's not always a problem, but it's ultimately part of an environment where your client wants to know the truth about something. And that's how I like to approach the exercise of media analysis. I will interrupt you here just to be sure. You're saying the truth, but when you mention the truth, is this the true perception 
of, let's say, different entities regarding a particular problem or like the truth, truth, because I'm taught very often and a lot of practitioners say that the goal here, uh, usually in the media intelligence in industry, is in a way to measure the perception of the audience regarding a topic. It doesn't matter if that's fair or truth. Back to you. Yeah, very cool question. And in my experience, it comes down to the personal ethics of your client. The most ethical client wants to know the real truth, whether it's good or bad. <laughs> yeah. The less ethical client wants the truth which tells or validates his or her story, even if it might not be factual. So they're really looking at it only from their perspective. If you'd like, try and just look good, regardless of the truth. So uh, I find people who are trying to make a difference really want the truth. And they're usually the best of the best in PR and communications. And you'll find they want to know, really, when we talk about sentiment, how are we getting to that? Am I letting an AI robot just go through 500 million pieces of content and give me a number in a pie chart? Or are we saying, let me go to the top 10 handles or top 20 hashtags or top 50 influencers and journalists or top 100 members of our community and actually go in and do a human review of what they have written and who has engaged with them to be able to really identify what they are saying. Because often what they are saying will not include a keyword which is relevant to me. It might just be nuanced or indirect, or there might be irony or sarcasm. And therefore you need that human review to go through that information, to go through that TikTok video, to go through that Twitter post, to go through that print clip or YouTube video and piece it in together with the right kind of narrative. Then you want to ask tough questions. Okay, I've looked at that audience of content, people and influencers, but now let me find out, have they actually made a difference to anybody? Are they reaching different stakeholder groups? Who are the stakeholder groups? If I want to sell an iPhone, do I want to target people who are 13 through 18 in Sofia, Bulgaria? Yes or no, and why? Do I want to target people who are 60 to 65 years old in Bulgaria, but they have a master's degree and they understand technology and they know how to download an app and how to interact with software? And then you look at people and you find out that group of content pieces, the people who are messengers, messengers, influencers, and the stakeholders, how do they interconnect? Is there a truth in that connection or not? And you'll find people who care, People who are ethical, people who are smart, they want that full connection to be identified. People who are a bit, you know, shy or, you know, not too confident, they only want yeah. the beginning or what I would call the output. They don't really pay attention to the outtakes, nor do they pay attention to the outcomes. But without that full journey, you won't have the truth. Okay. So we... We're still on the truth and you define that uh, usually customers prefer the truth. Back to the methodology, okay, they want, they want the truth. So you know that they want the truth. What are the next steps? What kind of people do you involve and what do they usually do? H how long do you source from your customers in order to pretty much understand what their problem is and the whole context? How much time does this take? If this is maybe the next step, well, it's a very good question again. We have a structured process at Karma. It begins with content capture and ingestion. 
being able to capture all of that content, all of that data, and put it in a structured form, which can go on to the next phase, which we call content enrichment. The content enrichment part involves additional values, additional data, additional meaning, etc. And then finally, you've got the insights where people come in, they look at everything captured, everything ingested, everything enriched, and then they find and they tell the story. For that three-part process, capture and ingestion, enrichment, and insights, you have a different team with different skill sets, different leadership, and different methodologies. They all come together to deliver that reporting. Now, that's on the karma side. On the client side, you need to have really good clarity on the objectives of the client. What are you trying to accomplish? What do you want to know? What truth are you trying to discover? Where do you want that truth to come from? One country, 10 countries, 100 countries. That influencer, that journalist, that stakeholder group, that message or the other message. You put all of those requirements and objectives together into what we call a matrix, a methodology of requirements and metrics which you need, and that will govern the entire process. Where is the role of like who has the leading part in all of this? I, I presume that that should be like a senior analyst or someone who at the end is responsible for the delivery. So who's that? Ultimately, you have a project manager where in Karma, we call them as insights consultants who will manage the entire value chain. That would be for a client who has a big requirement a very insights-driven requirement. But we need to keep in mind, there are many smaller clients who don't necessarily want insights. They just want data or enrichment. They might just want, how much do I have in that country compared to that country, in that title compared to that title? That's on the capture part. You have other clients who want to go one step further and they want that quantitative information, but they also want to be able to say, what's my domain authority? How many people read that article? What's my potential reach, etc. And here's where the enrichment element will come in. And some people are happy to stop at enrichment. So if you want a client who wants a more basic remit, it doesn't have to go to a project manager in Karma. It can stay with an ingestion team, a capture team, or an enrichment team. Okay. Hopefully another cool question from me. You describe like these three phases in order for a report to be delivered. On which phase usually most of the effort goes. I presume that's the enrichment part, but yeah, I'm sure that you have a way more detailed information. Yeah, it varies by requirement. And there are clients where the enrichment will be very difficult and requires a lot of time and energy. But if you're looking at a client in the emerging markets, for example, a client from uh, India, where you have a lot of media, which is not available online, then actually the capture becomes very hard because you need Mm -hmm. to send people to every province in India, buy the newspaper, scan it, OCR it, translate it, enter it into your system. And if the client is an Indian client who wants that done in 20 Asian countries, then you're doing that in 20 Asian countries every day in multiple languages with no digital information. You're digitizing it effectively. So in Europe, in America, You'll find a lot of digitization in the output, but in a few emerging markets countries where you have a lot of analog data, which isn't available online, you have a huge process for the capture and ingestion part. Obviously, a company like Karma, we operate in all continents, so we see everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the hard, and the easy, but every element of that three-step approach 
varies by geography, by content type, and by client requirement. Okay, for our listeners to understand the end result again, how does a report looks like today? Is it like just a Word uh, document with a lot of tables, spreadsheet, and some text? How long are they currently? So could you please describe the typical report? Sure. Well, I'd imagine the most popular report is either an automated dashboard, which a lot of the younger people like, or a monthly PowerPoint report, which is 10 to 50 pages. It has charts and graphs. It has standard metrics, including volume, media type, sentiment, messages, language breakdown, country distribution, top influencers, top journalists, and so on. That's also very, very popular. But we're finding new ways of reporting, which are becoming popular too, including the overnight report. Something happened today, the client wants to know by the evening or by tomorrow, and you cannot wait until the end of the month. These reports are usually smaller, two or three pages at most, with a very well-written summary and the top metrics in a chart or graphical form. You're finding other forms of reports, which are very much reputationally driven, and they combine media data and market research, including surveys, desktop research, focus groups, which allow the client to look at the journey of information from output to outtake to outcome and to impact. So reporting is starting to become more varied, and I find that the best clients want a combination of media data and market research in a very short report, usually done on a regular interval. On a regular interval. How about the different classes of reports? The one you did describe, I believe that these are which start with a particular problem, like uh, what is the public opinion regarding a brand A and its competition or uh, regarding politician Z, something like that. I know that sometimes there are different types of reports, like influencer reports, which maybe have like completely different structure compared to this one. Can you share with us the different types of reports which you currently deliver or which are in a way popular within the industry? Sure. So we talked about automated dashboards. We talked about monthly analysis. Now, things like influencer databases or influencer reports can be daily, they can be weekly, they can be monthly. It depends on the ambition of the client. Clearly, you're looking at a different data set. So if you go to Tom Friedman of the New York Times, he's going to write one article a week. But the engagement around that one article is very different from an influencer who goes twice a day onto TikTok. The question is, who has greater impact? And that varies between a journalist and an influencer. And that's why you might have different metrics to look at them in a different way. Tom Friedman might write one article a week, and that one article has much greater engagement and much greater impact than an influencer who might get half a million views. Why? Because the stakeholders who are affected by that one article are more powerful. They have much more influence on a macro political and macroeconomic level. And if any one of them makes a decision or forms an opinion, it will have far greater than the half million views which the influencer will have on TikTok. So you need to look at them in different ways. And if you can do the very complicated and challenging part of linking them together so that Tom Friedman on the New York Times online or NYT, times.com and Tom Friedman on TikTok 
there is a link between the two. And being able to measure that link is a challenge, but it can be done. The technology and the methodologies are getting better all the time to establish that link. But you can have a very basic influencer report. Who are the top 10 influencers in Bulgaria who write about iPhones? Yeah. So you could do that. The important part is to have what I call content completeness. What do we mean by that? It means having all of the right data, all of the right media content. So we know what that means on print, on TV, on radio. It means trying to capture everything and not miss too much. But on social, it means something completely different. So today, if you go onto an automated dashboard for social media, with nearly 95% of companies, you find Twitter has a huge amount of data, followed by Facebook, followed by Instagram, not much from LinkedIn, not much from Snapchat, not much from TikTok, nearly nothing from Pinterest. Why? Does that make any sense? Of course it makes no sense because the reality is that TikTok is number one, <laughs> way ahead of Twitter. But most automated dashboards can only breathe the content available to them. Gnip from Twitter has a big, wonderful open fire hose and that's why everybody buys it. So you find a lot of Twitter data on your dashboard. Facebook and Instagram, on the other hand, they only allow you to crawl your own pages. But Often, 50, 70, 90% of the engagement isn't happening on your own pages. So if you're the Apple page, most of the talk about Apple phones isn't happening on the Apple Facebook page. It's happening outside of the Apple Facebook page. But there's no API for that. And if you scrape those conversations and you're breaking the law, and Margaret Vestager will come down from Brussels and give you a big multi-million dollar fine. So those in the FIBAP community who are doing it illegally, beware. One day you will be caught and one day you will be fined. Don't do it. <laughs> what we've done is we've created teams that are specialized in the human review of the content on all platforms. That way we can provide our client with content completeness and the ability to see a full picture, which usually has TikTok at the highest level, either Instagram or Snapchat, depending on your country, in second place, and the others following after that. So content completeness is a critical ingredient to a very effective, comprehensive, and accurate media analysis program. You mentioned all of these sources. We will talk about this just in a brief moment. I want to go back to the measurement part. We talk about influencers. What kind of methodologies do you have in a way to measure the influence of, let's say, like a TikTok account with million users and at the same time, a very respected and well-known journalist from like a prestigious outlet? How do you compare this? Is it actually doable? Of course it's doable, but it takes effort. That effort is not complicated. So if Tom Friedman is writing an article about how great the iPhone 13 is, then what I care about isn't the huge quantitative metrics and potential reach and all of that. In fact, it's becoming really silly to see potential reach numbers which are greater than the number of people on our planet. <laughs> and you'll often find these dashboards saying, oh, potential reach, 50 billion, in number of engagements, 2 trillion. Come on, guys, give me a break. What I care about, if Tom Friedman is writing about the Apple or iPhone 13, who do I care about? Let's assume that my priority is to sell the iPhone 13 to wealthy business people. Then I want to go to the wealthy business people where they are on social or in traditional media and find out, did they see it? Did they interact with it? Did they share it? Did they comment on it? 
I don't care about the other 49.99 billion potential reach. I care about the 5,000 in my country, the 500,000 worldwide who we were targeting in that particular campaign. And it's pretty straightforward to find out if they've engaged with it or not. They either did or they didn't. And by being very focused on your stakeholder, on your outcome, then you can eliminate a huge amount of noise and you don't try to play games with your client by showing just big fat numbers. You're actually showing these people did or they did not engage with that campaign, with that content or with that effort. Okay, let's go back to the different sources. You said that Twitter, in a way, are media intelligence friendly. Like they have this service, you can go there, subscribe to that service, and you will have access to what's going on almost in real time on Twitter. Plus, you will be able to, if you want like historical data, you can extract that data from the first tweet to till today. But that's Twitter. There are a lot of other social media which are not that media intelligence friendly. And you said that uh, this could be potentially could be a very risky business in a way interact them with not so official manner, if I can say that. But still, there is a lot of conversation on those uh, social media. My first question is, do you think that each media analysis should contain analysis based on conversation from social media? Is social media mandatory in 2022? And the other one is, if we don't have uh, Facebook and Instagram as a source, is the rest of the conversation in a way representative for achieving the ultimate goal to give the truth to our customers? No, it's not. You must have content completeness. Now, one platform might be more important than another platform. For example, if you are a B2B client, then LinkedIn and Twitter are a lot more important than Facebook and TikTok. But if you're a B2C client, then Instagram and TikTok are more important than Twitter, for example. So you don't have to have it from every platform, but you must have your content from the platforms which are relevant. And whether they have an API or not, that's not the client's problem. It's a media intelligence company's problem. And we have to make the investment in technology, time and people to get all of that data, even if they don't offer an API. Okay. About social media, is social media mandatory for each report or we can work only with, let's call them traditional media, like broadcast, newspapers, news websites, etc. Or pretty much depends on the problem. Yeah. If you want the end result, opinion, then you must have social media. If you want the beginning result, which is, you know, where am I? Then you can do traditional on its own, social on its own. But if you want what people think, you must have social media. Okay. Let's go back to the three steps in order to deliver the report. You said that these are usually delivered by three different teams. So I presume there is a team really focused on, in a way, gathering the raw data. There is another team who's responsible to index that data or enrich that data with some metadata, which is after that needed from the analysts in order to produce the report. And of course, there should be analysts at the end and project manager who is, in a way, (laughs) keeping all of this together and communicating with the customer. Tell us more about the different roles and the different talent which is required in order all of this to happen and which part of that talent is in, in a way mandatory to be part of any company which does this as a service. Sure. There's a lot to unpack here, but here's a few examples. In the capture element, you need people who can write very good search queries. You need people who are very good 
at indexing and structuring data. You need people who are very good at reading and understanding. You need people who are very good at applying OCR, STT, and other machine learning technologies. On the enrichment part, you need people who are very good at understanding different quantitative and qualitative metrics. You need people who are good at translation, who can identify whether a Google Translate is good enough for a piece of content or whether they need to translate it for the ultimate step, the insights and analysis teams to be able to have good quality data to actually analyze. You need people who understand things like domain authority, rankings, and, and so on. Finally, from an insights point of view, where you have the highest potential skill set, you need people who have a good business background, who know how to look at a PL or a balance sheet to put everything within a business and financial framework. If it's more on a B2C level, to have some kind of consumer research background. And then everybody must have a cultural background. Everyone must like to travel. It's actually part of one of karma's values. An official karma value is intellectual curiosity. We like to hire people who read books, who travel, who want to know, who want to go places. They're hungry for knowledge. So they must have that 360 degree cultural and curiosity within them. Now you can sharpen that and have it driven by a particular interest. So for example, if we're doing a banking client, then it's much better for our analyst or insights project consultant to have some kind of background or knowledge and experience in working with financial organizations. If it's more government and public service, you want your analyst to have a little bit of background there too. Okay. Perfect. A lot of people involved. That's inevitable. I need to ask you this about AI. Like <laughs> in FIBAP, most of the companies, they hired uh, data scientists or machine learning slash deep learning uh, specialists. And they're experimenting how to use their skills in order to, in a way, increase productivity or increase the coverage, the number of the documents which are processed, maybe on the second phase when, when documents are enriched. But where do you see practical usage and practical use cases for the current state of the technologies, where we can trust the machines and how do these educated machines fit in your existing workflows? Or again, very good question. In our three stages, capture, enrich and analyze, you have two layers below that, quantitative and qualitative. On the quantitative part, AI is getting better and better and better at capturing stuff, structuring it and indexing it. So I would say AI has covered a big part of the quantitative capture of data, provided it's legal and copyright compliant, of course. On the qualitative part, is that positive sentiment? What message is in those 4,000 tweets, etc.? AI is still pretty slow. It can help but it cannot solve. It can identify peaks, but it cannot always tell you why. So on the qualitative metrics, AI, I find, is actually falling behind, not catching up. Why? People are overestimating what AI can do, and they are underestimating the world's greatest computer, the human brain. And you'll find, for example, me, my mother, and my daughter... We have a little WhatsApp group and we speak to each other on that WhatsApp group. So my mother, she is born, she's originally from the Galilee, which is in northern Palestine or Israel. You can choose which one you want from a small village north of Nazareth. 
She will speak to me in a Galilean dialect. I will write back to her on that WhatsApp group. And I have grown up in Dubai. I have a bit of a Dubai accent. I went to a French Jesuit school. So I'll speak in a bit of English and a few French words. My daughter has gone to an American school and she goes to summer camp in Switzerland. So she has a variety of different languages. And she will respond to us, not even in words, but in emojis and in icons, which are made up from her imagination. So you've got three people from one family, one bloodline, and each one of them has invented their own language with their own library and their own alphabet. Now, it doesn't matter how many data scientists you've got, but when you live in a world with 8 billion people, and thanks to technology, each one of them is creating their own language, you're no longer looking at English or Arabic or Chinese, you're looking at 8 billion different languages. And no number of data scientists can catch up with that. So we're evolving the meaning of thought, we're evolving the meaning of linguistics, and those of us who combine computer science with human sciences understand that it's not only AI which is evolving, it's the human mind and the human spirit which is evolving. And that's why what will happen over the next 100 years is there will be a huge acceleration in AI. It'll be fantastic and exciting and a little bit scary. But like throughout history, there will also be a huge acceleration in the human mind and the human spirit. And they will continue to compete with each other forever. But no one will overtake the other. And every time AI does something that people did before, people will figure out a new way of doing things that AI cannot do. And that competitive tension will continue forever. And that's why you always need the both. You need a balance of both technology and people. Great answer. Thank you for that. Let's go back to Karma. Karma has won several measurement awards. Uh, this is from our producers. <laughs> and I'll ask this question because otherwise they will kill me. But what is the secret behind the successful analyst team? Yeah, what can you share with us? And I mentioned here measurement. Could you please talk a little bit more about what kind of meaning do you put behind measurement? Because in a way, this is, this is like an internal uh, terminology for our industry, like people who are part of the media intelligence, they know what monitoring is. And when they hear about measurement, they understand something different. But could you please explain what's the difference between monitoring and measurement? Is it or is it the same? Plus, uh, share some of this uh, secret sauce. Okay. Uh, obviously, I'll answer the quick question, the difference between monitoring and measurement. I think we alluded to that earlier. Monitoring is the act of finding the relevant data to your client from the media. That's it. Measurement is a general word which can encompass evaluation, insights, analytics, uh, and so on. So it's a general word which basically tries to interpret and put meaning to the data that you monitored. That's it. So they're pretty clearly differentiated in my mind. I don't find any confusion between the two. Uh, if you'd like, monitoring is what happened. Measurement is why did yeah. it happen? Yeah. Now, in terms of why Karma has won awards at Amec, I think it comes down to one simple thing, and it's not really a secret. At Karma, we like to keep it real. We like to deliver what matters. And that begins by listening to our client and really listening to our client, not just saying, oh, I want to do a report. We listen and we challenge our client and we challenge ourselves to find out what truth are they trying to find. When you focus on that, then you're able to structure your entire program 
in a way which is impactful and allows you to look in the right place for the right data and the right people. So that's a key step, listening to the client. Another key step is having a good company, which means good technology, good data, good people, a global network, and making sure they're all working together in synchrony. That's why we don't like buying companies, because it would mess up our flow. We like to grow things organically for everybody to have a one karma approach and a one or singular methodology, not multiple methodologies. Uh, and that's a very good way of operating. And finally, it's a commitment to quality, which I think I've described over the past 45 minutes, content completeness. Don't give me only part of the content, give me all of the content. A balance between technology and people. Don't just automate everything. Let's have some curation and filtration to push out the irrelevancy and to have smart people tell a story from that data. These are all elements which come together and help us compete effectively on awards. Thank you. There are people who think that communication professionals and in that regard, uh, communication companies which provide communication services, they still struggle to prove their value in front of their customers. Do you agree with that? Do you see some untapped potential because it's in a way very hard for us as media intelligence professionals to communicate what are the benefits of, let's say, media analysis or all the different services which we provide? I do agree with that. And when I was president at FIBAP, one thing I really wanted to do was help the market and our clients understand what we offer and the value that we offer. And the starting point to that was to give our industry a name. So until a few years ago, if you asked people, well, what do you do? You'd have people say, I'm an MMO, a media monitoring organization, or I'm a clippings agency, or I'm a media analysis agency, or I'm a PR distribution agency. You'd get many different answers. But all of these things come under the umbrella of media intelligence. Now, I didn't invent that term. That term is an old term going back over 30 years. But I pushed for everyone in FIBAP to use the word media intelligence. And when we'd be in a conference or a FIBAP summit, people would say, well, all MMOs should get together. I'd say, hold on, change that word to media intelligence. So the word media intelligence has started to become much more standardized. I think we still have a lot more that we need to do. And we need to have a more formal approach to saying we are a media intelligence company or a media intelligence industry. And I think that will continue to grow over time. So start by defining who you are and what you do. Yeah, yeah. If you're a chocolate maker, you're a chocolate maker. If you're a bags maker, you're a bags maker. We are a media intelligence maker. The next step would be to have much more simplicity in what we offer. The problem today is when you talk to a client, they'll tell you, I want a report. But what do you mean by a report? Some might mean a report are your daily clippings. Others might mean I want a monthly PowerPoint. Others might mean measure my reputation. A report means many different things to different people. So I encourage all FIBEP members to productize what they do and to say, all right, I'm giving you a software license for automated media monitoring, or I can give you an advanced software license for automated media monitoring and automated analysis, or I can give you a media analysis report based on your reputation or your message success or your stakeholder mapping. The more we can productize what we do, the more we are able to convince our client about the different value points. 
And that will help people who are good at what they do. Differentiate between a client who wants to pay $500 a month, but they want huge value delivered. You say, okay, go, go for a basic automated product. But if you want to pay, if you want your reputation, you might need to pay $5,000 or $50,000 or $500,000 a month. So number one, define our industry. Number two, productize our value for it to be simple and it can justify the value, whether low or high. And finally, we need to market what we do. We are terrible at marketing, mainly because we are data and insights people who are mainly talking to people in PR, but we should be doing a much better job at advocating for the value that we do and being much more long-term in our thinking and in our outreach. I'm still thinking about what you said about the value. And I went back to the different types of reports, which we described previously, but we never talked about, in a way, consulting our customers. Is this a standard practice or it's, in a way, additional level in the value chain where we uh, consult our customers how to upgrade or change the perception regarding, regarding them? Is this part of this business or this is like purely a task for the PR specialists? I believe we are entirely entitled to be able to provide consultative service. And your insights can be basic or they can be consultative. And I would definitely encourage people to go down the consultative route. There's a lot more value, but you need the right people to do that. You can't put a 24-year-old yeah, that, that, right? you know, person yeah. in front of a, a CEO. You know, if you're talking about a CEO in the automotive industry, then your insights consultant must have been in the automotive industry or worked with it for a very long time. So no, I do not believe there should be a line between our consultation and the PR industry. I do believe there should be a line between us doing PR. We should not be doing PR. Let the PR agencies do PR. But we have every right, and I believe responsibility, to provide consulting on what could work and what might not work. And then the client can make a decision on their own. Previously, you mentioned that Karma does not buy another companies because this will change your flow. Did I quote you correct? Correct. We did buy companies, small companies, five or six years ago. We are not active in that space anymore. We found what the positives and negatives are. We found that with very small companies, it's doable. But if you want to build a fantastic company, it needs to be organic. And there's no point buying another organization with another culture and another group of technologies and trying to force them together. It becomes very complicated, very expensive, and usually it doesn't benefit the client. But other companies, they don't do that. Almost each quarter we see these major groups buying smaller companies within our industry. By the way, do you think that this is good for the industry? Because a lot of independent suppliers, they disappear. And is this good for competition? Is this good for innovation? I don't think so. Um, I found that most of the big mergers and acquisitions which have happened have been bad both for the clients and bad for the companies who have pursued that M&A. I'm sure some people will disagree with me, but when I look at the companies which have done the heaviest M&A, I find they find a very difficult time to integrate. And usually there's a lot of value which has been lost and a lot of balance sheets which are finding assets being written off at a very high pace, probably at the cost of billions of dollars uh, to investors. I don't believe M&A is bad. 
I think it can be okay in a very targeted way, in a very small way. But for a billion dollar company to buy a $500 million company is usually a bad thing for the market and for the companies as well. They're usually driven by people who like putting the balance sheets together, but they forget that you actually need to put the people together, the content together, the technology together, and you're better off building that on your own than trying to buy it. I want to ask you about products. It's a kind of similar question to the previous one, but on one side, we see these huge, big, multifunctional platforms that try to do everything, like they combine clippings, reporting, press releases, distribution, monitoring, newsletters, etc. And on the other side, there is this really diverse ecosystem of a lot of different smaller but specialized tools. Maybe these are two extremes, but what's your opinion on these two extremes? Where does Karma stand on this? Like, what are your strategy on products? We believe in integration, but we believe that it needs to be done seamlessly. Like, we cannot buy a PR distribution company and plug it into our system. That doesn't work. And if you try to force it, you end up having so many technical challenges and content challenges, which make it unviable. But I do believe that a PR platform, which does all three of the holy trinity, the data plus distribution on one hand, the monitoring at, uh, on another, and the analysis at the end is actually very viable. Ten years ago, it wasn't viable. But thanks to cloud technology, which allows you to scale and have huge content managed and stored and distributed very affordably, and thanks to new AI tools and processes which allow you to scale and integrate things, you can actually have integration. The important thing is to have the patience and the time and the money to build it because it takes a very long time to do that. And to have a global network where if you're a big global multinational, you can reach influencers in China and in Argentina and in Europe at the same time. But also if you're a local coffee shop, that you can do that with your local influencers. And that takes a very smart global network, which can balance between globalization and localization. Not easy, but certainly doable. The final question is usually the hardest one. We will ask you to, in a way, tell the future by <laughs> telling us which are the technologies or the technical trends you see now, which are the one which you think that will shape this industry, let's say in 10 years? I know that this will be very, in a way, maybe it will be a very responsible answer because nobody should know that, or it's a very risky, but still would like to see uh, and hear more about your vision regarding that. And what kind of products and services will our industry deliver in 10 years? Yeah, I mean, usually I am unable to tell the future. And uh, I, I think very few people can tell the future. I can't say I've met any of them. But on this point, I do know the future. Okay. <laughs> and while AI will evolve and get better, processes, platforms, content will evolve and get better. That's not the future. The future comes down to one thing, investing in good people. If you have a proper program, which allows you to put your top analysts and put them on a flight to go and learn about culture, business, technology, stakeholder groups, to know how to tell stories, to know how to understand stories, to know how to listen to stories. They are the future. It doesn't matter what the tools will be. Throughout all of human history, the tools have never won. The people have always won. And that will never change. 
So an investment in good people is what will make the media intelligence company of the future succeed. And that's what we're all about in Karma. Thank you. This is great ending to this conversation. I personally learned a lot and I'm sure that our audience learned a lot too. Thank you for your time and we reserve our right to talk with you in the future. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for staying with us. We really hope that this podcast was very useful for you and very interesting for you. If you don't want to miss our future episodes, please go and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We are on each platform. If you want to give us any feedback, there are several ways to do that. Please mention us on Twitter. Our handle is at underscore feedback or use the hashtag feedback podcast. Or you can just write us an email. Our email is secretariat at feedback.info. If you want to support us, please go and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify or just send us ideas for episodes. Again, our email is secretariat at feedback.info. few words about the people who worked on this episode. The hosts were Alicia Bors and Vlado Petkov. Our guest was Mazen Hawi. Producers of the episode were Sofia Karakeva, Alicia Bors and Emily Jadler. Our editing and audio mastering was done by Anton Felev. And our marketing team were Anna Tsenova and Oresti Patricius. Thank you.